Welcome to the ATF Podcast. In this episode, we speak with Mitch Brulette. Mitch is an active law enforcement officer with over 20 years of experience. He's also a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. I'm going to keep my intro of him brief, but what I will say is his experience and position demands our attention and respect. In the episode, we dig into what the role of a school resource officer should be, especially today, how the public as well as the media should respond and handle the increasing amount of violent crime in places like schools and churches, and what are some simple steps that we can take to be better prepared. Mitch demands our respect and attention, and we hope that this interview gives you insight into what police officers are dealing with day in and day out. They need our support, and that starts with us understanding what they do. Our guest today is Mitch Brulette. Uh, he's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he's currently a police officer for a local California police department, and he's got over 20 years of experience that ranges from patrol to SVU to SWAT team leader and school resource officer. Um, he's also certified active shooter response instructor, law enforcement active shooter instructor, critical incident response instructor for the California Association of Tactical Officers. And, you know, between his time in the Marine Corps, his 20 years of law enforcement with 15 of those holding roles in SWAT, including sniper team leader, breacher and other specialties, um, as well as now also being a security consultant with DACTIC. Delta Tactical Training Group. Uh, Mitch is uniquely qualified to offer our audience perspective on really what's going on today. So uh, welcome, Mitch. And first of all, thanks for your service. I appreciate you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I think you may be the biggest celebrity that we've ever interviewed. Um, Your YouTube video from the high school that you served as a resource officer has uh, almost 20 million views today. I know that still to this day is humbling. And um, <laughs> that video itself, uh, I mean, I got contacted from people in different countries. And um, most recently we had a new applicant come to the department and uh, actually applied because of that video and wanted to work in a community that I'm lucky enough to work in. And honestly, Patrick, that whole thing was just, my department was great. It allowed, they allowed me to be me. And I had no idea what I was doing when I walked on that campus other than I knew I had to get involved. And I think that's what it was is, you know, I was a resource for not only the students, but the staff, but also the parents. So it became this very unique thing. And if I probably look back at my career and the, you know, I've been lucky to do a lot of things that position as an SRO, I mean, still gives me, you know, I get, see kids that have now progressed and done all these amazing things in life. And, you know, to see what they're doing, it, it's still this like feeling of, man, I really had an influence and they had an influence on me. So it's a uh, kind of works both ways, but that position itself was, like I said, amazing for, to be in that role. Well, I, I mean, it says a lot about you, Mitch, um, about the way you jumped into that position, you know, with, with both feet and your whole heart, because, you know, and, and we know that about every assignment, right? You know, like whether it's the military or, or law enforcement or honestly anybody's job, you know, not every element of the job is glamorous. Um, and, and I'm sure, you know, if, if you dished out, you know, a card deck of assignments ranging from, you know, SWAT sniper and breacher 
to school resource officer, you know, we, we know the table of guys, you know, which carts would be, you know, jumped over the table for and which ones would be like, you know, damn, that's the last card on the table. I guess, <laughs> I guess I have to take it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it feels like, you know, school resource officer isn't, you know, always the most sought after position, you know, in the department and, uh, you know, what you make of that position is, you know, kind of up to you, but you, you seem to really do a lot of special things that, that really impacted the kids in more than just safety way. It's like, what, what led to that? Well, like I said, so I walked onto that campus and the campus was 3,100 students, 29 to 3,100 students. And I was blown away when I found out there was a principal, four vice principals, four counselors, a psychologist, and a marriage and family therapist for all those students. And I was blown away that they had all these resources. And I would stand during lunch and watch all these kids and I was trying to find my way in. Um, and what basically I found was the culture on campus is driven by the leadership program, the activities director, all that kind of stuff. So that's where I knew I had to start. And I had, I don't want to say it was strategically planned, but my idea was there was a method to my madness and it became, I know, I know teachers and staff were probably a little annoyed with me at first, but I would walk into classrooms and I would walk students there if they were late, you know, and I'd cut them a break and walk them into a classroom. And at first, when I walked in, the people would, the teachers and the students would always be like, oh, who's in trouble? But then it became the norm of me walking into a classroom and no one even blinked an eye when I walked in. It was more like, you know, hey, Mitch, da 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 da. I let them, you know, call me by my first name. It was like I built the relationship with the kids, but they allowed me in. And, um, the other realm to that, Patrick, was I found that um, I was highly involved with the special needs, the students with special needs, and we did stuff, stuff with them, and they kind of made the campus culture bring everyone together. So I just took the opportunity, and like I said, my department allowed me. Um, I had you know ideas that I wanted to do, and they allowed me to do it, but then also um, it was that culture on campus getting involved that really set it off and it ultimately kind of took care of itself. Like it, it took some time, you know, um, first two, three months, like I said, I think the teachers and staff were like, who is this guy? But then the students started. And then it, the cool thing, Patrick was when the new incoming freshman class would come, the upperclassmen would already tell them about me. And it wasn't like I had to build relationships with that. So I allowed, there was a lot of times kids would spend in my patrol car talking. And if I just gave them, you know, 10 minutes of my time to talk to them and that would make their day completely change. And then also, um, I lost my train of thought on that one, but it allowed them to, uh, a space to go. So if I, like I said, yeah. I became a resource for many different people on that campus. Well, I think that's, that's the most interesting thing as I was thinking about it, you know, leading up to today's call is, uh, I think so many of those assignments are, are positioned as as a safety officer, right? You're you're you know you're on 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 the ground security, um, but the title has always been school resource officer, and and you know it, it seems like you know either by accident or your own design, you know you imagined what what a school resource officer should provide students and it and it obviously I, I mean there's just no disputing it watching even just this video 
that you made a huge difference in the lives of these kids. And I mean, you probably remember high school. I remember high school. High school is not an easy place no matter where you go to school. Um, you know, there's a lot of life to navigate during that age. And, uh, and you seem to really help them. Well, let me touch on two things. So it's funny you say that with the resource, because I was lucky enough to give presentations and be part of, uh, the uh, safe schools conference down in Anaheim for many years. Um, each time as a presenter, I came up with different things to present everything from critical incident, active shooter response to, um, I had this idea of, you know, I shared my story with these kids on campus and allowing them to. So there was a presentation I did called What's Your Story? Because everyone's dealing with something. You don't know what that person next to you is dealing with. So the presentation that I gave was to administrators and law enforcement administrators. And that's what I put in there was school resource. We are a resource, but you can't put the retired, the cop that's going to get ready to retire. Cause all he's going to do is go hide out and finish his last few years. Right? right. And you can't put a brand new cop in there because you're doing a disservice to him because he wants to go out and catch bad guys. So, and to be honest with you, somebody fresh out of the Academy, they're so robotic and all that other stuff. And they're not going to, to act the same. So my message always to was administration on both sides was you have to make that position, something of value, whether it's a, you know, a pay increase, you know, uh, a, a special days off, something to that extent. But you had to, honestly, they always talk about agencies trying to build trust with their community, right? Nobody wants to have another Ferguson. Um, but what it really starts with, so, you know, we do all these things on social media, like the dance challenge, the lip sync challenge, coffee right. with the cop. But the people that go to coffee with the cop want to go introduce cop, you know, talk to cops. That doesn't they're, work. They're already pro-cop, right? Yeah, so how we build that is it starts when they're young. And if you start building right. positive relationships, and my thought process was this. <clears throat> if I built a positive relationship and gave these kids an, an opportunity to, to talk with me and discuss things, how is that, how would their, let's say they get pulled over down the road, that whole interaction with that law enforcement right. person is going to be different because of right. the relationship I already built with them. So. Like I said, it needs to be a position of value within your department. If you're not, you're doing a disservice to your community because that's truly where you start building and bridging the gap and discussing matters that we're dealing with in this world. So, um, well, I think it does. You know, I mean, obviously, you weren't in an inner city school, you know, which which you know would have its own you know right. much different challenges. But I do think um, it's uh, it's such an overlooked opportunity to you know to give the youth of america you know positive foundational experiences with law enforcement you know and counteract you know maybe that um that peer community message you know that the cops are just out there you know harassing kids and letting kids be kids and you know whatever it happens to be so so we're going to cover a lot today and we're going to bounce around a little bit so so first you know, help me give some perspective on the things that that we're hearing in the news today. And, and you know, we, we could spend all day talking about the news, which we're not. Um, but, you know, news would have you believe that that crime is increasing dramatically. Uh, mass shooting and, you know, basically everyday occurrences. You know, our families aren't safe and guns are the issue. Um you know what what are your what are your thoughts about that i mean you you obviously have a career in law enforcement you're you're very well connected nationally 
um, you know, are things getting worse? And, and if so, you know, why? So I think part of it, um, and where we're struggling in law enforcement, and we haven't been able to evolve from it, but there's institutional betrayal within our own organization, right? Um, administrators are dealing with things they've never had to deal with as far as from the liability standpoint, civil liability, um, the uh, legislation with all the public records release acts, those type of things. But ultimately, where I think officers are some are having issues, especially from the patrol side of things, is that institutional betrayal from the district attorney side of the house where these guys are out there working hard and working under conditions that we've never had to deal with. You know, the change of use of force policies, de-escalation. Um, we're pulling away from calls that we would have never pulled away from years back. But then also they're doing good jobs and they're trying to, cops are motivated people in general. They're type A personalities, you know, to become a cop, all the stuff we have to go through to go into the academy. Then you get out on FTO, you're out there, you want to arrest bad guys. But then little things happen and you put these cases together, send it up to the DA, no charges are filed. Or it just, The laws are not, the laws are so lenient now that it's causing, it's causing issues. You know, the, the, the two cops killed in down south, you know, but that person, maybe he shouldn't even have been out. And he was able to be out and he committed these these murders of two police officers that have family and all that other stuff to go to. So there's part of the institutional betrayal that I think causes issues. And when you have, I think agencies around the state for sure are dealing with morale issues, um, motivation issues. Some of it could have been COVID, but I, I honestly goes back to that institutional betrayal on the, and it's the legislation and the laws and the leniency that we're having on some of these crimes. Um, you almost feel like you're spinning your wheels. So I'm in a supervisor role right now. And I, what I really try to do is focus on the positive things um, as I can daily. And I try to get the people that I have direct influence over to, you know, we can only control what we can control, but this let's focus on the, on the positive things. And then if we have things we need to work out, let's be productive about it. Um, but going back to a little bit to that question too, it, we're almost becoming immune to these critical incidents or these mass killing events because they're happening so frequently. Um, and we can dive into this and I got some thoughts on where we need to improve both, not only in the community you live in, you know, our schools, but anything else that we consider a soft target, a church, you know, grocery stores, movie theaters, all these things that are where they're happening. It all goes back to pre-planning and how, how we're, how we're teaching that and what we're doing. So, um, and it's not the, it, you know, there's a, a thing I read where, you know, we can have every law in the book, but evil doesn't follow the law. So um, right. we can have legislation, we can have all those things. And each event is different. You know, like I have, you know, kids, uh, guys that I went to high school with that this last shooting, you know, reached out to me. And one question was, hey, would metal detectors help? And a metal detector would help in some incidences when that person that's supposed to go to school brings a gun to the school. But this person or Parkland or any of the other ones where they don't go to school and they're able to access campus, a metal detector is not going to work. So there's each each incident is going to be different things. But again, it goes back to evil is not going to follow the law. So what do right. we have to do? Yeah. So so you can't really legislate your way you know out of out of a problem, no. um, you know because the problem is usually caused by you know, a, a breakdown in following the laws that already exist. I mean, there's no shortage of, of gun laws, right? 
Yes. And, and every single one of them is broken, um, you know, in Texas. And, you know, as you mentioned, the two officers that were just murdered um, down here in Southern California. Yep. So, um, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm always confused about that strain of uh, logic or, or argument, I guess. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring it up and, and it's something that there's just so many layers. It just gets so complicated that I think it's easy to just throw your hands up and walk away. But, you know, we're, we're both in California and um, I agree that, you know, I, I talked to a lot of officers and, you know, one of them said something I'll never forget that, you know, he said that I, I almost feel like I be, had to become a salesman, you know, just in order to get somebody um, processed um, and held, you know, in, in jail for, for breaking a crime because, um, you know, we'll bring somebody in who's, you know, outstanding felony warrant, you know, you did something else yet again, um, you know, sign, seal, deliver, I show up and they say, you know, ticket and release and issue a court date, like, you know, we don't have room or, you know, or, or whatever it happens to be. And, and I just think to myself, like, you know, God, that's just got to be so demoralizing to, you know, to catch a true bad guy, you know, before he does something else, absolutely horrific. You've got him off the street, you know, you're bringing him in in cuffs and, you know, it, it should be a proud moment. And instead, you know, they, they push you away and the guy's got to just be laughing his butt off as he walks away out of cuffs going, yeah, sorry, sucker. And, and you see that with just how brazen, you know, some of these, these crimes, you know, have become that, you know, they're walking into retail stores, you know, Apple stores, Home Depots. And, and, you know, there's, there's a ton of people that have them on camera as they're pushing shopping carts of goods out. Store employees aren't allowed to do anything. They, they push it right out to their car, you know, yeah. load up the car, drive away, nice, cool, calm, you know, I mean, easy peasy. And I just think, Man, you know this place has become the wild west. It feels, but 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 it starts with you know the the point of that was, you know I remember some of the bills that got passed that were up for a public vote, and you know I think it even starts with the problem of I remember some of the titles of these bills, right? You know one one of them was um, you know the the school improvement act, right? Another was easing prison overcrowding, right? Like, like these things on the surface by their title, it's like, well, who, who wouldn't vote for the Schools Improvement Act unless you read the fine print and realized that, you know, the bulk of these nonviolent felonies that were holding people on drug charges and whatnot, you know, now became ticket and release misdemeanors. Yep. And now you wonder why, you know, you can walk into a retail store and walk out with a couple grand worth of goods and, and, you know, you get a ticket, you know, it's a misdemeanor, you know, like it's the same as, you know, if if I'm driving 110 down the freeway, it's a more serious offense than me walking into an Apple store, stealing an iPhone. Yeah. No, that's that part of that institutional betrayal. And I think that's where it becomes a struggle because a patrol officer, if he doesn't do his job, they're crucified, right? Well, you, he should have done more. But then when we do do it and we do everything that we were supposed to do and we do it right and we send a good case over to the DA and they either, you know, plead it down to a misdemeanor or whatever they do, 
and the person's right back out. So it all, it's such a hard process for the patrol officer to understand, especially guys that have, you know, 10 plus years on the street. They know what it used to be like. The new guys coming in, they have no clue. They're, this is what the normal is for them. This is what they are used to. It's the older guys that struggle with and Why am I doing anything? Why am I wasting my time? Why am I trying to protect my community? Other than they live in town and they're protecting their own community and they're taking at least a little bit in solace in that, that we're at least inconveniencing that bad guy for the night that he, you know, got a ride to the jail. But right. ultimately, you know, nothing may happen. So it's just the realization of the way things are. Um, I'm hoping for improvement. I'm, I'm very optimistic about things is, is and my over outlook on life. So I'm hoping there'll be a pendulum swing back our way. Um, I just don't know how we can sustain this. Like, you know, you're, you're specifically talking about organized retail crime and those are planned events and they're coming. Northern California is coming down to Southern California to do it. And Southern California is coming up to Northern California to do it because they're not from the area. So it's happening all over the state and it's just, everyone's a victim and the store holders. And I, even the citizens that are, or the people that are going out there shopping, like, they're having potentially to get put into some sort of critical incident because of the, what these individuals are doing. So it becomes, it, I talk to my wife about it all the time. She, she lives and we can talk delve into this too, but I, she lives in condition white. She believes the world is all good. And I want her to believe that when I'm with her, but when I, when I'm not with her, I tell her, I said, Hey, look, I live in condition yellow. I'm always situational awareness. Where are my surroundings? Right. I size people up. I do it. And, I just tell her, I said, hey, can you mix yellow and white and get like, can you live in condition tan? At least get me halfway because yeah. I don't want her to be an easy victim. I don't want her to be a victim at all, but I don't want her to be an easy target. And no, so it is scary. We, it's scary for the people that are out there. Yeah, you you, you, you and me have the, uh, the same conversations with our better halves. And, yeah. and you would think after decades of being together, it would have rubbed off on them by now. But um you know, thank, thank God they're as, as good and pure and unjaded as, as they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like, look, baby, like, you know, you, you can't, you can't walk around with your wallet and your, you know, your new iPhone in your hands. So like, my wife's you know, she's getting better. She's, she is getting better. I'll give her that credit. So yeah, my, I, I don't want to, I don't want to ever get that phone call where something bad happened to her. So I, I completely agree with you. So, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's a combination. I think everybody, I, I think the news plays a big role in it, right? I think, um, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're in the business of getting ratings. And, you know, I think the more carnage, um, you know, carnage sells more than good news stories, unfortunately. Um, so I think, I think that's part of the problem. I think, you know, this is my opinion, uh, but I think that leads the perception that people have, you know, that things are getting worse, that things are getting more dangerous, that there's a higher likelihood that I'm going to stumble into a situation that, that ends violently. Um, I think it's also supported a little bit by the numbers too, right? Because, you know, gun crimes, gun deaths, um, violent crimes, um, you know, have increased um, in numbers. Now, that said, you know, and, and that's an interesting, you know, play. And we saw the same thing at work with COVID numbers, you know, that the media would share. You know, it's it's convenient to show total deaths of COVID. 
but let's not show the breakdown by age demographic because, you know, that's going to make anybody under 65 not all that worried. So it's better if everybody's worried, right? Yeah. And, and I think if you look at crime and gun crime and gun deaths um, on a per capita basis, um, you know, population has increased, right? So as a result, numbers are going to increase. And we're, we're still well below the peak uh, that was set in 1974. So, you know, are things getting worse? Is it that, you know, our, our staffing of law enforcement and our training of law enforcement hasn't kept up with the population growth? And so the ratio of officers to population served, um, you know, has continued to get unfavorable. Um, I know we've already talked about policy and procedure that has kind of tied your hands. Um, you know, how do you view this? You know, it, are, are crimes increasing? Are violent crimes increasing? In the region that I live in, I, I do or work out of too. Um, I, I feel they are. Um, and I think you touched on part of it. Um, every agency that I, from, from Northern California through Southern California, and I'm sure throughout the nation, are struggling with staffing issues. Um, it, this is not a favorable profession to be in. It's not, you know, no longer are we seen, let's say the mass majority or the quiet majority see us in a, in a different light, but we do have a job that we get scrutinized. I mean, I, you talk about the, the YouTube video from the dude be nice video, but there was one that just went out. Um, some lady came in to make a complaint and it was a first amendment auditor. They call themselves and she tried to expose me on YouTube. So it's like, it's a very difficult profession to be in. So staffing levels are, are low. And it's not only because of what's going on, but the legislation dictates a lot of that. Like we feel truly that our hands are tied. And then, so guys are getting frustrated. They don't want to stand on protests or picket lines and you know, be screamed at all the time and yelled at and, and not looked in a good light. Yeah. Um, so I do think what's going on nationally or what has been going on nationally does have an effect on um, where we are in our profession. And, you know, it used to be like when I, when I became a law enforcement, and, I, and to be honest, I never wanted to be, I never thought I could do this job. It was, I worked, I was in the military. I got out, I did, I worked, uh, did video surveillance systems, that kind of stuff. But I ended up missing the military. And the closest thing to it, um, to me was law enforcement. And, you know, I already had my, you know, my first daughter was born, so I wasn't going back into the military. So I chose this profession and it was hard for me to get a job at that point. Like right. I put myself through the Academy. I had a second job at night and I had to like apply and test for multiple agencies. And now it's the complete opposite. We now are you have to walk up and yeah. And we are paying for people to go to academies. We're bringing people on as employees, as administ doing administrative duties to get them on payroll and then sending them to the academy when it opens, right. just so we can- Well, and unfortunately, you know, and, and this is a, a, a touchy subject that, you know, I, I, I don't mean it disrespectfully, but because of this labor shortage and because of just how hard this job has become and, and how unattractive it's become, I think, um, you know, a lot of departments have had to lower the bar, you know, guys are becoming cops that, you know, back when you became a cop, you know, back when I was considering it, like you, these guys never would have made the cut. Oh yeah. And, the, and that's the thing. It's hard is you don't want to, 
you know, you have to have the best because what the public is asking for us is the best. There's so many things that we have to know and perform at a high level every single day. We can't, we can't afford to make a mistake no. and we gotta have, we gotta be in the right mindset. We have to have the proper training, the proper equipment. We have to have a clear understanding of policy procedures and tactics, like all those things. And we have to expect that from the people that we're hiring. So they're and, and honestly, Patrick, one of the biggest struggles that young officers and deputies are having is the fact that they're at the age group where they grew up with, with the social media and all they know is how to communicate with somebody behind a screen. Right. And so they get out on the street and they struggle with talking to people. It's just not, yeah. it's not comfortable for them. It's not normal for them. So there's a different approach and we have to, you know, the era of growing up and, you know, being yelled at and doing that kind of stuff that it's changed. It really has. I and know. It, it, you know, how do we, that's why I kind of mentioned it earlier. We need to evolve and adapt to, not only what's going out there on the street, but internally, what are we going to do different law enforcement wise so that we are having the best people out on the street? And because they're, you know, they always talk about the face of a, you know, the department. It's not the chief. He's no. the guy at the top. It's the patrol, the patrol officer that's out there on a daily that those citizens are dealing with. So we right. in, being in a supervisor role, we need to give them the tools, have them, you know, like I said, policy, procedure and tactics clear understanding and give them the, put them in a position to win. And yeah. then in the long run, everyone wins. So it's tough. And I agree that staffing is, is an issue with some of the crime, not to mention, like I said, you know, the legislation, those type yeah. of things. I mean, so yeah, so things are, I feel things are getting a little rough, but again, I'm, I'm yeah. optimistic. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the numbers back it up too. Um, you know, the, the media reports and, you know, I, I'll tell you in, in preparing for this call, it's, uh, you know, it, it's no wonder people are throwing up their hands, you know, confused because, you, you know, you look at FBI data, you look at Pew Research data, you look at, you know, there's there's a bunch of different sources that that even I would consider reputable, you know, credible sources. And, and it's hard to nail down. And, I you know, just how many school shootings have there actually been? you know, like even this year. Um, and, and then it even gets more confusing if you want to call mass shootings, like what is a mass shooting? Um, you know, and, and if you want to lump all that together, you know, the, the number just got, you know, multiplied times 20, just when you incorporate what happens in South Chicago on a holiday weekend. Um, so, but, you know, I, I think generally the media is reporting that so far just this year, there's been 27 school shootings, and over 200 mass shootings, but obviously that's including gang-related stuff and and you know everything else. Um, you know that follows years where where those numbers have you know annually been on an increase. So I think generally accepted. Um, you know, last year there's 34 school shootings, almost 700 mass shootings. The year before, 10 school shootings, 611 mass. Um, you know, those numbers kind of keep. You know, it, it, they're big numbers. Um, but the interesting thing is in contrast to that, you know, other developed countries don't seem to really have this issue. And, and even, you know, countries that I wouldn't throw in the, you know, if I, if somebody said, you know, list out what you would consider developed countries, I wouldn't be throwing some of these countries on this list, but, you know, just for example, like the top of the list 
is Mexico. And they had eight last year, eight school shootings. Um, South Africa had six. India had five. Then we start getting into Nigeria, Pakistan, Afghanistan, like a few. Now, granted, you know, their their legal systems are different. Their culture is different. You know, just about everything's different, right? Um, but then, you know, you get into like Canada and France and you're zero. talking about like zero, one, two, maybe. Um, you know, why, why do you think this is? Why do we have this problem? It's funny you ask that. So I listened on my way in. So we did the uh, Special Olympic torch run this morning with our with our training. And so call, call for a very early morning for me. Um, and when I was driving in, I listened to a podcast that was released today and it had a, a officer from the Royal mounted Canadian police. And the same question came up as he brought it up and had mentioned that talking to us and you're talking to the other group that's in the United States, it's more of a cultural thing to, or to us. They, he said they had zero and he goes, we have more family annihilation is what he called it you know, family on family killings, that kind of stuff. So (laughs) you could go mental illness. You can go all these different things. I don't, I don't, this, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know the reason why it's, it seems that in America, like I said, we've almost become numb to it. And, you know, we shocked the rest of the world, but we're all becoming immune to it. It's like, I don't get it. And, and I've researched things and and looked up and it's not training. It's not any of this. I, I don't know. What promotes? Yeah, I, I know because I, I mean, I've, like you, you know, I, I, I've traveled the world. I've, you know, I've been in, you know, great areas and a lot of the world's nastiest areas. And you know, it isn't, it isn't training. It isn't school security. It isn't, you know, it isn't any of these things. It isn't a lack of access to weapons that you know can be used in malicious ways. Um, you know, maybe they're not quite as accessible as here, but nevertheless, you know, a bad guy can always find a bad thing, you know, to, to wreak havoc. Um, you know, somebody, somebody brought up and, you know, I don't know if there's any intelligence behind this statement, but we, we do seem to be the only country that the media sensationalizes, um, the perpetrator of this, you know, they, they almost, you know, like, you know, going all the way back to, you know, when I was a kid, and and I, I know, I think we both grew up in California, and we're we're you're, I think you're a few years younger than me, but nevertheless, I grew up, I grew up in South Florida, so then I made my oh, way. okay, okay, then you don't area. remember this, but you know, like like there was a serial killer in California named Richard Ramirez, the night, nice oh, I know, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, famous famous guy, right? But that's the point; he's a famous, famous. guy. Right. Like he gets fan mail in prison still. Right? Or maybe he's dead now. I don't know. But I know for a while, even when he was in prison, like women were were asking him to marry them. Like, you know, I mean, and, and we'll get into psychology. We won't get into psychology, but like we turn these people into borderline celebrities. So so I think that, you know, does that enhance that temptation to martyrdom? You know, that, that, hey, you know, I, I can be famous. And and the more you do that, does it open the door to more of it happening? Oh, I 100% agree um, that that's a big driving force. In fact, uh, some of the training I do, I do talk about some of the things that lead up to or what 
causes people to co that commit this crime. You know, and part of it is, is the media is the, probably the number one thing. You know, these violent video games that we have, um, you know, there's music out there that drives some of this stuff. So some of these things that these, when the kids are committing these crimes, you know, are idolizing what they're seeing. And the media is a big purpose of it. And I always tell people this, if you don't think that the people that are committing this crime aren't studying past events, they're, they're, they're doing that. They are learning from what works and what doesn't work and how they can commit these crimes in a different way. And, you know, it's like the black box, like of an airplane when it crashes, if you take, and I'll give you this similarity, take Texas tower, right? When on the college campus of Texas, elevated position, shooting down into a crowd, law enforcement wasn't sure where the shots were coming from, took a long time to access them. At some point they said it was two shooters, right? So if you take that event, what is that eerily similar to? Vegas. It's the same thing. Elevated position, looking down into a crowd. They thought there was multiple shooters. And if you took that guy's brain out and you could study it, guarantee you he studied Texas Tower. So it's just like that. We put all the, and I'm not saying we put all this data out there for people to to do these things and, and to be idolized or, you know, in that sense. And it, and it happens. The Parkland shooter said he put it out there. I want to be the most prolific school shooter in the history, right? And it wasn't the Buffalo guy, dude. The guy in Buffalo, he's pure evil. He live streamed it. I mean, that's it. Just right. it's it's that you know that push yeah. they're getting that I 100% agree with. Yeah, we do. We give them too way too much attention. Way too much. We we study. They show them when they go to court. They do all these things. Right. All that stuff. I mean. Yeah. To me, so so. So as if you don't have enough to do, you're you're also a security and consultant for a company called um, Delta Tactical, and and among the many things um, you know that they do, um, you know they provide security and safety consulting to high risk venues like you know schools and churches and corporations. Um, you know, I want to talk to you a minute about policy. Um, you know, schools, you know, across the nation, um, you know, go, you know, dating back to 99 and Columbine, um, have started to implement, you know, a variety of measures to combat this, um, you know, ranging from, you know, just simply policy and procedure, um, to classroom locking systems. And even recently, some states have passed bills allowing teachers to conceal carry on campus, um, you know, in your opinion, are, are any of these measures effective? Um, so here's my take on this. So <laughs> the assembly bill that you're referring to is the school safety plan assembly bill. It forces the schools to do something, right? It, it forces them to have some sort of rubric or some sort of plan put into place. And they're supposed to share it with law enforcement, um, all these different measures, right? But when it comes down to an active shooter event or a critical incident event or mass killing, whatever you want to call it on a school campus, it's all going to go back to training. And, and what I mean by that, you could have the best policies put into place. Not everyone's going to know them for one, right? And when you face a chaos or a critical incident, you're going to revert back. To, it's not, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to revert back to the, to your training. And so, and it goes to this, Patrick, and honestly, this is in the present, the, the training that I provide for, the schools it's and what I try to do is they walk in scared and they got into a profession. And I tell them this, I apologize to them from the very beginning. It's, it's very sad that they have to attend 
a training like this, right? I knew when I went into the military or when I went into law enforcement, I would face credit right. incidents my whole time. When they did what they had to do to become teachers, they never thought right. they would ever have to get into us. The sad world is that we are. So this training that that we're providing or that we're doing is it's building confidence and they walk in scared, Patrick. They do. You can sure. see it in their eyes and they walk out with having a little bit of confidence and they have an idea of what they would. It's all pre-planning. Like in a critical incident as human beings, we're going to do three things, fight, flight, or freeze. And the whole mindset behind the training and what we try to do is that they don't freeze. And if they do freeze yeah. it's for a second. So, so it's the same as an earthquake plan, a fire plan, you know, whether whether that's at home or it's at school, like, you know, I, I'm a planner as well. Like, you know, we, my wife, my kids, you know, they all know, you know, th this is if it happens at night, if it happens during the day, if you're at school, like this is, this is where we would all gather up. This is, you know, how we would contact each other. He, these are secondary contacts. This is, this is no different, right? It's just an evolution of current threats in dealing with that. A hundred percent. And then tactical or tactical layers to deal with, right? Um, but I always tell them too, like, if you're on the A-wing, know what the person next to you is going to do, right? Or you may have, your cluster may not have a backdoor, but the cluster next to it is that cluster. But it's always talking about it. So, and I'll, I'll kind of get into just a little bit what why I was so passionate about this, this idea of training together was and it honestly patrick it was it's so taboo to talk about your kids getting shot it really is right. we want to talk about it, right schools have fire drills right all the time what's the difference and there hasn't been a fire in a school in 50 plus years and no one was killed but we have keep having all these events but it's taboo when it comes to you don't want to put it out there and so it took months of talking to the superintendent, you know, of the schools literally on the side of a, um, at the high school football game, just getting in his ear saying, we have to do something. And the reason why was the more I built relationships with the kids and the staff, the more I felt like I knew what I would do. And I walked around that campus on every part of inch of that campus. And I knew escape routes and I knew cover where, you know, where a good position of cover would be compared to concealment, all these things. But as I started talking to the students and the staff, and I realized they have no clue on what they were going to do. So I started this, it started to feel like I, if like blood would be on my hands, if something bad happened at that school, Right. I wanted to make sure. And then, and like I said, the blessing from my department, we trained all of our schools in the entire district. Uh, we have two districts in, in the, the community I work in, but we also extended that training to all of our city employees. And that included waste management, you know, the parks and rec guys, people that are out there, city hall. So now what happens is you have thousands of people that we provided training to. Now those people are bringing it when they go to the concert in the park or when they walk yeah. the mall. It's a force things. multiplier. Yeah. yeah. And so it was one of those things where, you know, I'm still actively doing it. And, you know, if I retire from law enforcement, it's something I probably will continue to do. And I'm not going to get rich from it. I just, I enjoy seeing the building, the confidence in the teachers and staff. And like I said, it felt to me like I, I had the training and the understanding and the knowledge with the tactical background. And it wasn't fair that I wasn't bringing that training to those. So I had a department that supported me, a community that supported me and now working for a private company, 
we could provide that training in other yeah. areas. So, well, I think you know, it, and and I'd be interested in your opinion on this because you 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 have far more experience in it, you know, than probably anybody, and certainly more than me. But I think you know, unlike fire drills and earthquake drills, you know, fires and earthquakes are events of nature, and you know, I, I've got a five-year-old son, eleven-year-old daughter, so. You know, describing the fact that there can be fires or earthquakes or floods, you know, these are natural events. And, you know, it it isn't the same discussion as saying, hey, you know, there, there could be a really bad guy who looks just like me. You know, he could just look like a normal dad. They could walk in your classroom and want to do you harm and, and kill you. So, you know, if you have this drill, you know, how do you how do you teach kids how do you maintain their innocence, but still make them ready for the life, you know, that they're living in today? And I think that that's the, the struggle and the obstacle is that, you know, my my 11 year old daughter, much to my wife's dismay, is uh, is very situationally aware, probably because you know she hangs out with me all the time. So, you know, she she now also instinctually always you know, always finds a, a booth in a restaurant that's in a corner facing the door, you know, that, you know, you're, you're only looking at a 180 degree view and I kind of watch her and I kind of chuckle and, you know, she'll, she'll nudge me every once in a while. Like, you know, when a guy walks into a store and go, Hey daddy, look at him. You know, it's like, yeah, I already saw him. It's all good. Don't worry. But she's developing that. And, and on one breath, I'm kind of proud because I hope she won't be a victim, but on the same breath, I, it makes me want to cry that I've stolen this element of her innocence that she has to view the world through that lens because of me. Like how do, what, how do we balance that? So I, I kind of go from, let's go from the high school level down. So the high school level, we, we conducted drills with students. Um, they're to the point where not only are they old enough to understand, they all, they also know they're, they're afraid of this happening. And that was the, kind of information I got gathering from the students that they were afraid this was that this could literally happen at their school. So from that sense of it on in, in a high school level, you can you can conduct a drill. You can I think you can. They're to the point where, like I said, they've they're I'm not gonna say immune or numb, but they're numb to these things happening and they're afraid they're gonna happen. They want to know what they would do. So I think at that age you can I said you can even break that down into the middle schools. Where it gets tricky is down into the elementary schools, but we still have yeah. to we still have to be have the ability to talk to our kids about it, and and you know you can conduct drills, um, but it, I was I learned this. So there was a teacher, second grade teacher, who told me that when her kids went to recess and her kids went to lunch, she had them get in a line, but she told them to run like a snake, and so that way, and whoever told her this, it was brilliant because she said. I was preparing them without even knowing that if something bad happened and I told them to run like a snake, they would know what to do. And it's the same thing. You take innocence of, of younger kids, but mix in the special needs kids, you know? And so what I said, what I, the, what I try to talk to the teachers that I work in, in that kind of uh, classroom is that take them on what we call a nature walk, you know, and that nature walk could be a daily, you know, show them routes, how to get off of campus. And then when it comes down to it, you're just calling it a nature walk. You know what I mean? So you can do right. things when it comes to training, but ultimately it's got to start at the home and, and parents have to talk to their kids. You know, it used to be with schools, 
accountability was everything. And that's why nobody would leave a campus if there was something bad. Well, screw accountability. It's about survivability. We'll find the kids. And I tell, and I tell them this, Hey, when you leave, go, go home, there's cell phones. We'll be able to find you. Don't come back to the location or the, the site where this thing incident happened, get away and go. And if you have the ability to yeah. stop the threat or evacuate or move yourself from it, that's how we survive or at least mitigate some. I, of yeah. You know, that, that's a great point that, that I, I really want to make sure that the audience hears that correctly, because a lot of these drills, you know, were formulated in the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, long before cell phones and communication or anything. And the standard school fire earthquake drills are always established gathering points on campus so that head counts can be done and everything else. Right. And, and I don't want to say, you know, that's not valuable, but, you know, in, in a lot of these school shootings, you know, from a tactical perspective, I've, I've looked at them and just gone, man, like, why isn't there an alarm like a fire drill or an earthquake drill? And when that's the case, like, everybody should just be jumping out windows. And, uh, you know, if, if they don't have a robust training system where they can confidently count on teachers and adults to to provide a true lockdown and you know in some of those cases even that isn't wasn't sufficient you know because the perpetrator was firing through walls and doors and and whatnot you know as, as they're moving down hallways but you know worry less today about whether or not the kids are all meeting in a central gathering area just get them out of harm's way first and we'll round them up later well, you got hundreds, you got hundreds of cops coming, drones, you know, helicopters. We'll, we're gonna find you. You have to remove yourself from that situation. And like I said, schools have always been about accountability. We got to survive this event first, and then we can be accountable. And those things too, it's all part of the training. So when you run the teachers through the training, for example, you know, you, I have a, there's a presentation I give on lessons learned from past events. Then we give them scenario training, everything from evacuating to barricading. Um, to countering um, those type of things. But then you, well, what you do is you send them back to their classrooms and then you do an alert. And here's the thing. The alert has got to be plain English. None of this code red, code blue, none of this. It has to be, hey, we got a guy with a gun and he's in the A wing. Because if that happens, then the people in the D wing can make a decision if they're going to leave. Yes. And so, and the mindset is this too, but we, when we do this, we have them conduct barricades in their classrooms. So they have the confidence of what they would do. And then, their classroom, they're the, they're the chief of their classroom. They can design that classroom, whatever, to the strategically to be able to effectively barricade a situation. Because here's the thing. The people that commit these crimes are absolute freaking cowards. And anytime they're yeah. met with any kind of force, whether that's law enforcement, whether that's somebody out there, whether that's a barricade and they can't even get into the classroom, they move on because they're not going to take the time. So right. you, know, you talk to teachers about, understanding hard corners and you know you may ultimately human nature wants you to pull further away from the gunshots inside of a classroom where if he's shooting from the outside it may be better to get closer to that wall than it would be further back in the classroom so part of that is that is that training and and ultimately it's this and the the key is this is seven out of ten people killed in an active shooter event on a school campus are killed with a headshot and if you shoot guns, you know it's hard to make a headshot. So how are these people that have no training other than call of duty or something like that? It's because what we've been taught to do is get underneath the table and hide. And we have to do something different. So 
when we do conduct these scenarios and these drills, I put it on the board and I, and I, we start with, Hey, what would you, what would you have you been taught to do up to this point? And that's the first drill. And the most people that are hit and killed are, are with it's in that drill. But if they evacuate, if they barricade, if they counter, and you talk about the countermeasurements, what you're doing is you're dividing that, that person that's committing this crime, you're dividing their attention and you're getting into their OODA loop and you're causing them to do different things that they would normally do. Just like, you know, and I tell the teachers this, you know, you have to observe, orient, decide, and act. Those are all the things you have to do to commit any kind of act, whether you're driving or not. So imagine you're driving and you spill coffee on yourself. And now you just got into your own OODA loop and you may get into a crash. It's the same right. thing is we have to stop getting underneath the table and hiding. And look, that all comes from, that's what they consider a lockdown drill, right? A lockdown drill is all from in LA down in your, in your area from back in the sixties. And they were doing dry, they used to have drive-by shooting drills. Correct. And they were told to get underneath the table and hide. And that works in a drive-by shooting. But when somebody's, sure. actively, if somebody's actively hunting you, that's not going to work and you have to do something more. So getting the mindset of, and here's the biggest thing you get out of this too. It's like, you see these teachers, they're like, wait, I can do that. Hell yeah. You can leave. Yes. You, you better do it. And now they're starting getting to that point, And th that, that has completely changed. Like we changed even our community, our fire drill, like or our fire. If we have a fire alarm on campus, we pause, we pause now. Why, why are we going to run out to the unknown? You know, we wait for yeah. a secondary alert from, you know, an administrator saying, Hey, we do actually have a fire. We need to get out of here. But we changed it because why are we running? Parkland, the fire alarm went off. Jonesboro, Arkansas, back in 1998, he pulled the fire alarm to get everyone to come out, and then they got shot from the tree line. So we have to do right. things different, and we have to evolve, and we have to we have to change with the times. And but more than anything, your your message is we we've we've got to learn we've got to learn that this is a fight and, and you, you've got to fight. Like, I, I mean, a good, good buddy of mine, who's a former special forces, he's got a saying, of, uh, which paints an interesting visual picture fight. Like you're the third monkey on Noah's Ark and it's starting to rain. Yeah. Yeah, no, you do. And I, and I tell people, look, you may never been in a fight in your life, but that's going to be the fight for your life. And you're going to have to make a decision on what you're going to do. And if one person jumps on that guy, then a second person jumps on the next thing, you know, you've got 600 pounds of pressure yeah, on a guy. You've got chairs, you've got desks, you've got books, like hydro flash, you've got fire extinguishers. I mean, I, I even tell the teachers, like, think about your campus. If you're, if you have a outdoor campus where you walk from the outside into a classroom, guess what? As soon as they walk in, if the lights are off, they have to adjust their lighting has to adjust, right? But now mention you're screaming. I'm even say spray the fire extinguisher in there. Like they're going to walk into a smoke room fill, full of room, not knowing what the heck is going to happen. So it's the whole mindset of doing something more than getting underneath the table and hiding. And when you run the teachers through it and you run the staff through it or church members or wherever you're going to provide this type of training, you see the confidence being built. And then at the end of it, they at least have a plan. And I tell them, man, you have to think about these things almost on a daily if something happened on your way to lunch to the cafeteria, where would you go? You know, if you're outside, yeah. what's your closest position of cover? Do you know what cover is compared to concealment? And if you get to a point where you are behind cover, they're going to run out of bullets at some point. It's not going to be a video game. Then move. Then get off at that point. So right. it's just it's really the situational awareness, the mindset of, look, you can survive this event and I'm going yeah. to do whatever I can other than get underneath the table and hide because it's not working. Yeah. And, and I think the same mindset applies, you know, whether it's at a grocery store or a movie theater or anything else. 
Um, you know, it's do, do you think um, do you think gun free zones work? Um, you know, they, they talk about gun free zones in schools and, um, you know, you, you it, it's it's not a fair comparison, but you haven't heard of anybody, um, you know, conducting a mass mass casualty event um, at a shooting range or a gun store or a police station. Right. Correct. And that gun free, like I said, going back to an earlier comment, evil's not going to follow the law and they're not for surely not going to follow a sign that says gun free zone. If they gun weren't going to commit this crime, they're going to commit this crime. So right. none of those things I think apply to, you know, to that at all. Absolutely not. Why do you think, um, why do you think suburban areas and suburban schools seem to be more of a target than inner city schools? So, you know, let, let's take, um, you know, let's take the last few school shootings and, and compare it to South Chicago. You know, South Chicago, you know, in a month, you know, has a higher body count than, you know, I, I think all of the school shootings combined for probably the last several years combined. Why, why aren't there school shootings in South Chicago? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. And, and it's like, for instance, I could tell you like on Parkland, that was my neighboring school growing up and they were in our district. I went to a neighboring high school and, you know, Park, Parkland's a, you know, a fluent neighborhood, fluent community. Um, a lot of mistakes were done in that. And I got my own opinions on stuff that happened there um, as far as response from, uh, you know, law enforcement on that side of things, but I don't know. I don't know if it's a mentality. I don't know, you know, if it goes back to, you know, the, the mental illness side of things. I don't, I, I, yeah. I don't understand. I don't, the, the concept kind of always has been off. Like you, and, and it, you, you would think an area of violence would promote more violence in, in more areas. Well, right? see, here's the thing though. I go back to this, there are people that commit these crimes on the school. They know other people out there, they're, they know, like I said, that's why I think they're cowards is because they're attacking the innocent of people when it comes to these events. And I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't I don't grasp the concept. I can't put comparison to, you know, why in more violent areas that this done, does not happen. Um, I don't know. I don't under I don't know. And I don't really have a really anything I could really say to that point. Um, yeah. On that. It's just it's a, I, I mean, so so in your opinion, you know what? You know, what should school administration you know i mean at the district level right because this is this is really a, a district level administration type decision in terms of policy and you know whether they choose to accept this as a new reality and and you know start allocating funding and action you know to to adapt right so in the same way that you know you say police departments need to adapt and to to you know the modern era of challenges um you know, because there's been examples of, you know, schools with SROs on site, you know, that, that were, you know, proven ineffective, private security, policy, lockdown procedures, you know, door locks, alarms, um, and, you know, and, and it, they, they've, there's always an example where, you know, the threat bypasses those measures that were put in place and, and the carnage still happens. And, you know, I, 
I go back and I think about, you know, our nation's military and, you know, our engagements most recently in the Middle East. And, and you know, I remember it was finally conceded by special forces that, you know, there's very little that you can do to combat a dedicated martyr oh, yes. other than just um, constantly staying on a very aggressive offensive. But, you know, the byproduct of that offensive is that there's usually innocent casualties in that strategy too so you know what what should districts do because you know it's it's my opinion and i don't know if you agree with this but you know the media and and you know some politicians i think you know try to try to present all this as a gun problem and you know whether or not regardless of what you believe about the second amendment and the right to bear arms and everything else which we're not getting into um you know, I think everybody logically has to agree that suicide is a different gun problem than homicide, than a a martyr-driven mass casualty event on a bunch of of just innocent, unattached civilians. Right? You know, it's it's very different for a domestic violence incident to escalate to spousal murder. Um, then walking into a school full of kids that you don't know and you have no beef with and, and murder, you know, dozens of them, right? Th those are very, very different gun problems because the psychology behind the crime was completely different. There's no one policy that's going to affect that. So how should, how should school districts and and all soft targets, you know, whether it's businesses or movie theaters or medical clinics or, you know, whatever it happens to be that seem to be, you know, sources of tension, um, you know, what, what should they be doing to, to combat this? So this uh, area where we could touch on a couple different topics. The first one you mentioned with the, the person that commits this type of crime, that's a special kind of evil that they have the mindset and the ability to go ahead and to commit this crime. So they've 100% committed that I'm going to go in there and cause mass carnage to innocent and, and likely die in the act of it. At the end of it. And that's why there's, in most of these events, there's, there's always usually just one shooter because how do you convince someone else to do that? Columbine was the rare, you know, one of the rare examples. But when you think about Columbine, they never left each other. They stayed with each other the entire time. So, they're, cause they're cowards, they're absolutely freaking cowards. But getting back into what schools and other soft targets have to do is we have to make it a forefront of, of training like this. And I keep going back to the training mindset and the training element and, and that kind of stuff, because you can draw it out on a board and you could do all this other stuff, but unless you put these people into your staff, into training, it's not gonna work. But what schools need to do, it needs to start with the superintendents, the chief of police, the, 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 the battalion commander at the fire, this safety committee that you put together, check your ego at the door, leave it at the door, come in there with an open mind on how are we going to do it? And like I said, lucky enough, I was, I had the ability and the, and the passion behind it to bring this to our community. And I had supporting from the chief and both superintendents of the different, but it took, Hey, check your ego. Let's get this out there. We owe it to our community, to our teachers, our staff, and all of our students to provide some sort of training for it. The other thing too is these events, 
once they start, they've started. But where you stop them before they start is people have to get more involved in what's going on. And a lot of these events, there was some sort of thing that led yeah. up to it, or there would we would have known Sandy Hook, right? Uvalde now, or these different things that have happened. There's been signs of something was not right, but we're so afraid to go down that route or to check our kids or, you know, to be more involved. Like have that, have that fear, you know, like, or have that courage to do that. And because you could technically stop some of these events before they even happen. Once they kick off, all we're doing is mitigating casualties. So we have to stop it before it even starts. And, you know, I made sure, you know, that I gave the students at the school that I was at a safe place to come if they saw something or if they were concerned about something. And we need to do the same thing. Administrators have to have uh, the culture on that campus or in their school for their staff from everyone that works in the cafeteria to the teachers, to the, the maintenance crew, all those, the campus supervisors, give them a, a, a platform where they can report something and let us investigate it. You know, if you see something, say something like, let us determine that it's not going to be a threat. You know, if you see something on social media, so we need to pre, you know, to get that culture out there to where we have a yeah. safe place for people to report and let us do it before it starts. Cause again, if it starts rolling yeah. casualties, it's, we got to stop it before it even starts. So, you know, totally it to, and it's not, it's not the school's only responsibility. It's not the law enforcement's only responsibility. It's a whole community involved because right. if something like that does happen and not to mention Patrick, even on that, we got to do more things. You know, we got to talk about the after effect of, if something did happen, you know, not be afraid to, and, it, and every, it, the bottom line is this, we have to be proactive about it instead of reactive. So, you know, be it's okay. We're to the point in this in this world where there's so much evil that this is no longer taboo and we have to address it and we have to be yeah. ready, God forbid, if it happened in your community. And to me, it's all pre-planning. You know, it's all yeah. pre-event planning when it comes down to it. Agreed. So, so I, I mean, that's a perfect segue into the last question I have for you, which is, you know, what, what should parents do? You know, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's getting, um, you know, terrifying, right. You know, to, to every day, drop your kids off at school or, you know, go into a crowded place, go into a mall, go into a movie theater, um, you know, with your family, you know, and, and, you know, on one hand, you know, you want to keep their innocence and you want to live, and, you know, I don't believe in fear dictating my life, but, you know, what, what advice do you have for, for parents, um, in ways that, you know, they can be more prepared to, you know, to be a part of that community and provide a, you know, kind of a force multiplier of, of, you know, in, in the event there is a threat. So I'll, there's two parts to this. So the first part would be what if you're the parent of the person that chooses to do this crime, right? And that goes back to what I just mentioned about get involved and know what your kids are doing, what they're doing on social media. Um, and, you know, if they have an Apple phone, you make sure you have an Apple phone and whatever app they have, you understand how to use it because those are going to be the telltale signs of something happening. So you, you may have a child, you may see his attitude completely change. Maybe they're being bullied at school, those type of things. When you see those things as parents, you have to address it. You have to, you have to, you may be the one that stops one of these events. So you have to get involved in what you're, you can't turn a blind eye to it. So the first part of that would be 
you may have that child that it's your child that chooses to do this. Yeah. Right. And, you know, nobody wants to have that, of course, but we have to be aware of what our kids are doing. The second part of this is talk to your kids about it. And, and I'll give you an example. And you kind of mentioned it with your daughter. So I have four kids, three daughters and a son. And since they were very young, um, I've always kind of quizzed them. Like, I'll give you an example. So my son's huge and he's in the theater world. So he's, he loves to be on stage. So we go to a lot of these theater events. And when the lights go dark, the first thing I do is I tell my daughters, I'm like, Hey, close your eyes. And I make them close their eyes. And I'm like, tell me where the exits are. And in their head, I can see they're, they're working and they'll tell me four of the six, let's say, but since I've been many years since they were young, not to scare them, but I get them to start thinking game. what's going on. Yeah. And so I've never been, I, I tell parents, talk to your kids about it. Tell, talk to them what they would do. My, my sister-in-law is a second grade teacher and, you know, I, I provide a training at their school, but I still quiz her daily on, Hey, what would you do if this, if this situation happened? What if you were here? What would you do? And it, and it just goes to, that's that pre-event planning. And remember, we go back to fight, flight, or freeze. And as human beings, we're going to do one of those three. And if you have that in your mind, you're going to go back to your training. So you can't be afraid to talk to your kids about it. And like you kind of mentioned, like, you don't want to put the fear out there and take away their innocence. Well, they see it. They, they're seeing yeah. it. And so you have to have an open relationship with them. Let them ask questions. And like, I'm not saying test them, but just be out. Hey, yeah. you're in the middle of your walk in downtown LA or you're down in Beverly Hills, you know, having these things. What would you do if something happened right here? And I'll give you a quick example. Just went to Hawaii a couple months ago, first time. So we are waiting with my wife, my sister-in-law, my father-in-law, and we're getting ready to do whale watching. So there's about 150 to 200 people standing in this area on the dock. And I just asked them all. I said, hey, what would you do if someone started shooting? Where would you go? Now we're in an open area. And they'd look around, and I pointed out spots to them. Hey, this is what cover is. But it's just like one of those things is I'm thinking that the whole time. I want them to start thinking that. So I quiz them just by randomly saying, hey, what would you do right here? And then it used to get laughed at, but now to the point where so many of these events are happening, they're starting to kind of see, okay, maybe I need to think differently. So I think you have to talk to your kids about it. Like I said, you can play little games with them and quiz them, but you can't make it, you can't be taboo because it's a sad world that these events are continuing to happen. It's almost daily where I'm afraid to, uh, to look and see, you know, what happened now. And I've, you know, I've changed my presentation every single time because it's like another event gets added and another right. lesson learned is get added. There's a more, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, but I, I agree with you. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for your service. I'm grateful for your passion on this topic because there, I just don't think there's enough people talking about practical things that, that people can do, you know, to, to combat this growing reality that we're all facing. And it just feels like, you know, everybody's, you know, crying about one big thing like guns, for example, and then putting their head in the sand, you know, as as more and more events unfold, when I think there are a lot of practical, logical things that people can do to provide more of a safety net around themselves and their family and their schools and their classrooms. And, um, you know, as parents, or as teachers, or just community members, you know, it, it is it is our responsibility to make sure that our kids grow up with the skills necessary to thrive. 
and and unfortunately you know this this is added to that list of skills of being situationally aware being aware of your surroundings thinking you know five steps ahead of what if what if this happened then i would do this if this happened then i would do that and and i just think those are those aren't bad skills regardless of what you're facing in life you know whether it's it's just a crowded dance party that you need to figure out a way to make a graceful exit from or you know a hostile shooting situation i I think um being aware and thinking ahead in terms of uh, what if plans are are just valuable skills that that need to be reinforced more especially now yeah i agree with you yeah well mitch i uh i can't thank you enough buddy for uh for coming on the show and sharing your expertise i i have a feeling this is going to be the first of several times uh that we have you back to to talk to the audience to share more of your expertise and um you know more things that you and delta tactical are uh, are doing to um you know face this growing reality that we're all facing i appreciate it. i really enjoyed myself patrick thank you all right thanks mitch we'll talk to you again Okay, bye.